Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Well, we're going to do something a little bit out of the ordinary today. Uh, my guest today is uh, me, uh, and that's a little bit weird. So I'm going to switch positions with former guest, Arnold Kling, who's been a guest on Econ Talk a couple of times. And he is going to interview me about my new book, The Price of Everything, A Parable of Possibility and Prosperity. And uh, I don't know who to welcome to the show, Arnold. I'll welcome both of us to the show. Uh, this was Arnold's suggestion. It was uh, a fun idea, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Okay, great. Thanks, Russ. The, uh, oh, I got a pre-publication copy of the book. It just came out a couple of days ago, re- recording this, what, about the August 18th or so? Yeah, I think the 19th. 19th. And uh, I was immediately very much taken with it. Uh, I think it works much better as a novel than uh, than either of your first two novels, and I found myself tearing up at the end. And you know, along the way, it was a page turner. I cared about the characters and so on. And if you don't believe that, um, as a recommendation, I, I uh, my wife was looking for something to read, and I gave that to her. And she has not been able to finish either of my books. <laughs> But uh, she went, went right through that book and agreed with me that it's a, a great novel and that you know, her eyes teared up at the end. Um, uh, that, that, that's very kind. I, you know, some people hate my writing style, so I, I appreciate anybody who... I hope it's tearing up at the end because you were moved rather than uh, you've been punished yeah, for so many pages. <laughs> and um, uh, we also gave it to my youngest daughter, who is a... Well, we just finished her freshman year at Brandeis, and she liked it and said she would like to take a copy back and give to her professor, Excellent. her economics professor. So um, th- I think there's a fair amount of evidence there. And I just want to highlight that the book delves into something, uh, a topic that I think is very important that really doesn't get explained too well in freshman economics courses, and that's the topic of spontaneous order. And I'm, I'm going to try to get us in our discussion to focus in on that on that issue. Uh, we're going to try to avoid spoilers, because I do think it is a, a page-turner. Uh, but I think we can avoid spoilers by talking about the first chapter, which I think you already have. There's already a link online to the first chapter. And like some other aspects of the book, it se- almost seems to anticipate uh, the day's news. So I think you found just the other day a story out of Florida related to Tropical Storm Fay that almost comes right out of the first chapter. You want to maybe talk about that? Yeah, uh, the ch- the books, as in my other books, the there's a fictional frame. I'm telling a story, and I try to use that story as much as possible to illustrate the economic concepts. But most of the economic concepts come out as dialogue between two characters. One of them is a knowledgeable character, and the other is less knowledgeable, and they talk about things in a teacher-student, sometimes adversarial relationship. The main character of the book, who's the student character, is Ramon Fernandez, who came to the United States as a, in the book uh, as a Cuban-American uh, refugee. His mother, uh, after the death of the boy's father, brings him to Florida. 
he grows up to be a tennis prodigy at, and gets a scholarship at Stanford. So the book opens with Ramon Fernandez at Stanford having a nice dinner with his girlfriend when the lights go out due to an earthquake. And they go on to uh, try to find some emergency supplies, milk, uh, flashlight and batteries, etc., only to find that at the first store they go to, they're sold out. Uh, at the second store they go to, a, a fictional store I created called Big Box, uh, there are plenty of batteries, plenty of flashlights, tons of milk, lots of other things, but everything that night is twice as expensive. And Ramon, from that evening on, gets engaged in a campus protest uh, involved with price gouging because Big Box is a large contributor to Stanford University. So it anticipates a little of, of the current news about Hurricane Faye, which I guess I don't know if it made hurricane status. No, yeah. You know, since Katrina now, everything is going to be uh, overly cautious. But uh, in advance of Tropical Storm Faye and fear that it would become Hurricane Faye, uh, the state of Florida warned retailers uh, not to gouge, not to overcharge or take advantage, as the saying goes, of, of, re of customers in a time of, uh, of a crisis. And so the opening of the book, and one of the themes that runs through the book, although it's, it's not the main theme, but one of the themes that runs through the book is the role of prices in helping people cope with uh, a catastrophe like a hurricane or an earthquake or some other natural disaster when there's a sudden increase in demand relative to supply, a sudden increase in quantity demand relative to quantity supply, uh, and what happens there. And... Uh, in the current world that we actually live in, and partly the world of that of my book, people are uh, often outraged by high prices in the face of a catastrophe. They would much rather have low prices. And we did a podcast uh, with Mike Munger on a similar event that happened in the state of North Carolina. And what happened there, we'll put a link up to that as well. But people have very emotional responses to this, and I think what economics has to tell us about it is that well, low prices, we understand the advantage of low prices. We have a little harder time understanding the advantage of high prices. One of those advantages is just solving the simplest of problems, which is who should get the goods when there isn't enough to go around. And after a catastrophe, there isn't enough to go around, usually, of something, whether it's water or milk or lumber and a rebuilding right after the disaster. And the second uh, role it plays, of course, is encouraging future supply and encouraging... Um, holding of inventory by retailers. Now, I should add, as I do in the end of the book, that you know retailers don't want to raise prices if they can avoid it. If, if we've gotten much better at just-in-time inventory and forecasting uh, disasters, so price spikes are, I think, much smaller than they used to be. But inevitably, after a disaster like that, there is almost always something that is very, very scarce, very valuable to, to the people who really want it. And high prices uh, play an important role in, in creating social order and harmony after an, an event like that. In, in your chapter, you have, as you mentioned, two stores. One of them, which does the politically correct thing, keeps its prices steady and runs out and can't serve people. And the other store, your fictional big box company, raises its prices but has the good in stock. Right. And there's a question I ask at one point in the book, uh, the teacher character in the book is Ruth Lieber. She's an economics professor at Stanford and the provost. 
and uh, she gets tangled up with Ramon because Ramon's the graduation day speaker, and there's going to be uh, political consequences for Stanford because of his protest. Uh, but she, at one point, talks to him and asks, you know, which store would you rather, which is the better store? The store with the low prices and nothing on the shelf, or the store with high prices and um, plenty of goods to choose from? And Ramon doesn't like either choice, as most of us don't. Uh, he wants a, a better way, but uh, unfortunately, I suspect there isn't a better way in the real world. Okay, and yet, in Florida, you said that in that story, there was this, this warning that was issued to stores not to raise prices. In right. effect, they're ordering them to be the store that runs out of Which the they will be, of course. Um, and, you know, it comes back to a... Um, uh, a quote of Hayek's that we've we've talked about in the past here on, on Econ Talk, a wonderful quote, where he talks about our natural and human urge to take the ethos of the family and spread it more widely. So, and I use this example in the book. I'll stay away from the details of it, but the the, the gist of the economics is that when there isn't enough to go around in a family, usually the parents allocate the good using love using information that they have about which kid had something to eat so doesn't need the, the cookie when there aren't enough cookies to go around, which kid already had a piece of, say, cake at a birthday party, or which kid had a big cookie the last time they had a shortage in the family. And it's a very natural, egalitarian, and also informed set of decision-making that parents make when they have a situation of scarcity. I think most of us like the idea of a town or a nation making a similar fair allocation in a time of crisis. And what Hayek argues is that when we try to do that, we end up usually heading toward tyranny, uh, unfortunately. And what I try to argue in the book is that decision makers at anything much larger than a city, anything much larger, excuse me, than a neighborhood, don't have the information that they need to make that decision. I've written about this elsewhere, about the decision about who should get the goods when there isn't enough to go around. I wrote about this elsewhere once, talking about the flood that hit St. Louis a decade or so ago. Uh, a few months after that flood, I tried to build a porch on a, and a deck onto the back of my house when I lived there, and I was shocked that the estimates for the uh, cost of that were way out of line with what the architect had said it would be, just about double. And at first I was kind of upset that the architect had encouraged me to build this project, telling me it was going to be a certain amount, getting me then to get the drawings from him, and then finding out that I really couldn't afford it, didn't want to do it. But then I realized that in the aftermath of the flood, a lot of carpenters and anybody who was good with wood was, wasn't putting on decks and porches. They were rebuilding houses of people who had been wiped out by the flood. And what that high price signaled to me, unintentionally, it was no one's intention that that signal be sent, uh, was let the carpenters and the wood go somewhere else. And so I was induced by my own self-interest, this obvious invisible hand at work here, to free up the wood and the carpenters to go let somebody's house be rebuilt rather than my lousy little deck and porch, which for a carpenter to fool with it, one, he wanted an enormous premium because he was foregoing the opportunity for a much bigger project. And you know, that's an important role that prices play that we often forget telling people to step aside. Now, if a person had come up to me and said, you know, my house has just gotten destroyed, do you mind if, if I use the carpenter this month? And, uh, of course, 
if I'm a decent human being, I'd say, yeah, you know, my porch isn't that important. I can wait six months or a year for that, but you obviously need your house now. Yeah, go ahead. And that kindness would probably happen voluntarily in many, many cases, but we don't have the information necessary to execute that kindness. It's hard to figure out who needs the stuff, who to ask to say, you know, don't use it, let me have it. It's a little easy when you're talking about a carpenter. It gets a lot harder when you're talking about the gallon of milk I've stocked up and it's my fourth gallon because I'm just really paranoid. But somebody who doesn't have any milk shows up at the store and it's gone. The high price of milk after a disaster induces me to forego the milk, my fourth gallon, say, and it lets the other person uh, get it who desperately wants it. Now, of course, sometimes the high price means that someone can't even have the first gallon. It also means the carpenter is going to get really rich in the meanwhile, and that might bother some people. Uh, so there are all kinds of emotional stuff we have around these issues, uh, which are which are real and legitimate. And I think uh, you wrote about this yourself that your wife uh, had an interesting question after after this the discussion in the book. Yeah, she said, "Well, why don't more people believe this? And you know, why why isn't this convincing?" I, I think the best answer I can come up with in the case of the you know, the why do people hate price gouging um, so much that they're willing to punish price gougers? I think there is this sort of dislike of having people profit from others' distress. Yeah. And they're, they're almost willing to have an inferior outcome if it means that you get rid of the profits from distress. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, a part of that, I think, I think that's a huge part of it. Part of it is... People never thought about it. Obviously, I like to. I like the idea. I, both of us like the idea that if more people studied economics, that they'd maybe be more tolerant of these kind of price changes. But I think there's a very human part of this that does come from our uh, our intuition as uh, as family members. You know, the idea that uh, that when when my youngest son skins his knee, that my older son would say, "Well, what's in it for me?" To, to pick him up. You know, I'd be happy to help him if, if he promises the next time there's two cookies, I get, make sure I get one of them uh, when there's not enough to go around. Uh, we'd be horrified as parents if our kids acted that way. In fact, I, I relentlessly work to try to get my kids not to think, quote, you know, with like a green eye shade, profit-maximizing, cost-benefit person. So we have, I think, an intuition and emotion and ethos from our family life. And again, this is Hayek's insight, not mine that really serves us poorly in that larger context, but it's a very deeply felt human emotion and, and a very real one. I'd like to step back a second and ask, why do you choose to use fiction? Because you, you, you mentioned that, you know, uh, that you know, educating people about this sort of thing is important. Why do you use fiction? Why not a textbook? Uh, well, a couple reasons. Uh, I can't seem to write a normal book. I, you know, there's, there's some sort of compulsion in there uh, for me, but... Uh, if I step back and ask why I find it appealing to write these economic lessons in these fictional forms, I think that there, there are a few reasons. One is is that when we talk about spontaneous order, which I assume we'll get to in a few minutes, spontaneous order is a hidden form of order often in our daily lives. And so revealing it through a story is, I think, a very effective way to tell it and to educate uh, people about it. It doesn't lend itself to equations and graphs and charts, so it's particularly untextbook oriented. And I think one of the reasons that the insights of complexity and emergent order, spontaneous order, the insights of Hayek and, and Adam Smith have been lost to a great extent is because in the current classroom atmosphere, 
these lessons do not lend themselves easily to the sort of cut and dried standard ways that we usually teach with equations and graphs. And they're not, it's not a bite-sized chunk. I think we like Correct. to teach bite-sized <laughs> chunks of things. This is more of a holistic insight, I guess. It's, I, I find it um, uh, deeper the more I think about it. it, it it's very unbite-sized. It's, it's a mouthful, a, a, a worldful. So that, that's part of it. Uh, the other part, I think, is that people like stories. Um, I like stories. I like telling stories. And I think much of what we do as economists is, uh, as others have pointed out, is a form of storytelling. And what I've done is, in my books, is make it explicit. Um, I think, again, there's something deeply ingrained in us that it relates to storytelling both as a form of passing on of knowledge and as a form of, of entertainment. The other thing I'd point out, and I don't, I'd love to hear from someone who knows more about this than I do, uh, what we're doing right now and what we try to do here on Econ Talk is, is not a standard interview. There's an interview aspect to it, but much of what it is, I think, that makes it useful to you out there listening is the conversational part, the give and take, the back and forth. And I, I do that in my books in the form of dialogue between the teacher and the student or the informed person and the less informed person. There must be something about that that is easy to listen to and helps people absorb it. I, I, I think it has something to do with the structure of our brains, and I think it's part of the reason we like stories um, and why we like dialogue and why we like conversation and why we talk as a way to understand things, why we talk and listen at the same time. There's something going on there in the learning process that that is much more effective than the straight lecture. Um, and you know, we've I've talked a little bit about this before with Robert Frank when we've talked about problem solving as a way of, of learning economics. Something else is going on in the way we absorb information when we hear it back and forth than when we just hear it fed to us. And while we're talking about fiction, I'll ask a question that may be a little off the wall. Uh, any influence from Anne Rand, or how do you position yourself relative to Anne Rand in the world? Well, she, she uh, I like to, I joke around sometimes and say, um, you know, I kind of dominate the niche of economics fiction, but it's a very small niche, <laughs> and I wish I had more competition. Um, and when I say I dominate it, I, I, that's a little bit um, uh, arrogant, I there aren't many, let's just say there aren't many people who do it. I'm in the top five, uh, and, and because there aren't more than five people really who do it. There's a few people who have started doing it recently, Jonathan White being one of them, WIGHT has an interesting book, uh, tr using a similar uh, format that I do, that I use. Uh, Marshall Jevons, which is a pseudonym, uh, has written a series of mystery novels that illustrate economic principles very different from what I do, but in the same spirit. And then there's Ayn Rand. Um, and I don't mean to suggest again that there aren't other people doing something similar. You know, Michael Crichton does something similar to what I do. Uh, you know, he tries to tell a story and educate at the same time. You might, you might call it didactic fiction. Fiction intending to teach rather than just to entertain, although we, the more it entertains, I think the more successful it is. But I think Ayn Rand... Um, who I loved reading when I was younger and still find um, some of her narrative style powerful. Her characters are very cardboard and it's very melodramatic, but it is 
her books are page turners. They're very hard to put down. Um, she clearly was doing something something similar. She's telling a story that has an economic lesson in it, and every once in a while, her characters step back and give a lecture. You know? <laughs> they don't <laughs> just goes pretend on for hundreds of pages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, sometimes my characters give lectures too, and I and people complain that you know, real, in real life, two people out on a date wouldn't talk that way. And I confess, yeah, it's probably true. Um, but because I, I do have these two goals, I think what. What is disappointing to me about Ayn Rand, and we've talked about this before on Econ Talk, is a lot of people find her deeply appealing, I think because she opens a door for the pursuit of happiness, um, which is a good door to open. Uh, there's nothing wrong with feeling that you're entitled to try to be happy. Uh, her economics lessons for public policy, I think, have obviously been much less successful, or we'd live in a very different world. Um, and I attribute that partly to the um, to her her skepticism about altruism and fellow feeling, and I've tried to put that into all my books um, and to put an emotional charge into my books because most people want to care about somebody other than themselves. Don't they want to care about yourself? It's a grand thing, and as we as economists like to teach it, it has lots of unintended positive uh, effects, but most people won't care about more than just themselves. And I think the biggest flaw in her books is her not just failing to recognize that, but her disdain for it. And um, I think that turns a lot of people off, and I think that's a shame to the economics. Yeah, I think the the plus side of... I, I sort of think of the basic sort of left-wing or anti-economics narrative is that sort of, you know, capitalists are bad... Uh, politicians who try to rein them in are good, and Rand <coughs> comes up with the opposite story. You know, the politicians who are trying to rein them in are, are evil; they're villains. She turns them into villains, and uh, the selfish capitalists she she turns into heroes. I wouldn't say can't quite say turns them into good guys, but turns them into heroes for sure. And yet, I think one of the challenges with putting economics into fiction is that we don't really believe that personal villainy or heroism is as important as the entire system around it. Yeah, the constraints, the incentives people face. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, you know, I, I, I've never thought about that as one of the ways to think about her worldview. I think of her worldview as, quote, pro-capitalist, but it, you're right, it's much more than that. And it is uh, a good guy, bad guy story uh, that is really not much more plausible than the than the, than the reverse. Yeah. Um, Although, as fiction, it may be more powerful. A friend of mine once said to me that uh, every novel needs a good villain. Uh, you, you can get away with a novel without any heroes, but if you don't have a <laughs> villain, you, you don't have a, have a good story. Yeah, I think you need somebody that to root for or against. So rooting against is always a good starting place, too. But, uh, yeah. Um, let's get into this the topic of spontaneous order, because as, as I suggested before, I think that's really where I think this book is breaking new ground in the sense of something that's geared toward somebody who's never had economics or, you know, is an adjunct to a freshman course, getting into this topic, which we both suggested is pretty deep. You want to just maybe talk about how you approach that in the book and why you decide to take on that difficult topic. Yeah, and again, just to mention an old theme that comes up every once in a while on these podcasts, 
Uh, I mentioned many, many times on here the Hayek article, The Use of Knowledge in Society, which we have up on the Library of Economics and Liberty website. We'll put it up again as a link to this podcast. And Hayek in that article is trying to give people the flavor of the price system as a marvel. And we talk a lot about that in, in the first week or so, sometimes, of principles of economics. Prices do stuff. You know, they steer resources. They send signals. They, and I always thought I understood it, and it turns out I don't. Um, I didn't, at least. I understand a little bit better now, having, to, having written the book. The way I like to think about it is the... Uh, formulation that comes, I, th I think it comes from Adam Ferguson originally. He talked about, who was a predecessor to Adam Smith, he talked about things that were the result of human action but not human design. And that's just such an unintuitive thing for us. We're used to order that is intended by humans, and I use the example of cleaning up your house, doing your dishes, raking your leaves from your lawn. If you want your dishes done, they don't do themselves. Uh, you got to do them. You got to think about doing them, then actually do them, and that human intention leads to order the clean kitchen. But there's a whole category of stuff in our lives where there's order that isn't intended by anyone, and yet comes from human action. And the example uh, uses it in an essay for Econ Live, but it runs also throughout the book. Some of the examples I use in the book are language. Uh, no one decided that Google was a verb, but Google is a verb. You can Google somebody, you can, it's a past tense, I Googled him last night, uh, I Googled that concept last night. So Google's a verb, but no one decided it. You could say, well, we decided it. Well, what does that mean? Usually when we use the language of decided, we decided, it means either we put it to a vote, or we came to some sort of consensus, we worked it out, and then we decided to go out for Chinese food. That's We weren't sure Chinese at the time. We decided Chinese. But Google becoming a verb wasn't decided that way. And I also, then we move on to the example of prices. Who decides what the price of a house is? Well, it seems like the seller. But very quickly, you think about it. It's not the seller's decision. The seller has to set what the market price is. Well, who decides the market price? Well, we do as buyers and sellers interacting in this weird thing we call a market. But that's not what we usually mean when we say we decided. We set the price. So we fall back in economics to saying the market set the price. Well, it's not terribly informative about what actually happens in the real world. We simplify it with a diagram of supply and demand where they cross. That's the price on the vertical axis. Surely that's missing something deep and profound. So what I try to do in the book is show how those prices in turn create a whole different, I mean, prices are orderly in and of themselves, but the prices in turn create an order that is really quite extraordinary. And I, I use the, the imagery of the weaver of dreams. And we have all these plans in, in life. If life were static, if, if we all just did the same thing every day, day in, day out, well, then products would get better and better. People would get better and better at making these things that people liked. But that isn't the way the world works. We have new ideas, new fancies, new dreams, new plans, decide to become a vegetarian, decide to become healthy, decide to start learning how to play the flute, decide to change careers and become a, an engineer, decide to change careers and become a teacher, decide to... We have all these decides as individuals, 
And all those decisions need a whole world of stuff to make them work well together. And it's all out there working. Who's harmonizing all that? Who's in charge? And we all know no one is in charge. There's no one who's weaving the dreams together. And yet somehow the price of everything is adjusting so that you and I don't fight over stuff. I use the example in the book of graphite, because I'm paying homage to Leonard Reed's wonderful SAI pencil, which is a wonderful introduction to this idea of, of coordination and cooperation without a, a coordinator or someone being in charge. So, you know, over the last decade, hundreds, over 100 million Chinese have migrated into the city and pre from the countryside, and presumably they're using a lot more pencils in China than they used to because a lot of those kids are going to school who didn't go before. So you'd think that the other uses of graphite, like fishing rods and tennis rackets and the brakes of cars, those thousands of things use graphite, well, they wouldn't have any. You'd go into the store to, to buy a fishing rod made out of graphite and say, well, we, we don't have any. The, the Chinese have got them all. Or you'd show up to the store to, just to buy a pencil even, and they'd say, well, the Chinese got them this year. We'll have to wait till next year. Those things never happen. That wonder, we don't appreciate it. We so take it for granted that the world doesn't work that way. That wonder is what spontaneous order is about in the economic setting. And coming to appreciate that's been um, just a deep revelation for me. And I hope I've tried to give the reader some insight into how it actually works and what's amazing about it. I think that's, it is an important point. I think people really prefer to think that there is a designer. Um, I, you know, I think part of the hagiography, if that's the right term for Franklin Roosevelt, is this notion that he was actually going to take charge. He may have made things worse, but he at least let, let people know he was in charge. And people believe that. And I think one of the reasons that people don't walk out of the freshman economics course with any sense of this spontaneous order is that the is most economics professors are really eager to get to a narrative in which the, the government really should be designing things. It just, markets are something that the government can delegate some problems to, but the markets are sort of like this bumbling clerk that often gets things wrong, that always fails, uh, always does something wrong, and then you have to go in and correct them and correct their work and, and, and fix them. Um, what's the counter-argument to that? narrative or that? Well, I think there's, there, there are a couple. Of course, markets, I was going to say markets fail. Uh, again, our language here is so uh, inadequate. Uh, and Hayek bemoaned this when he, he would write about how our language, we don't have a, a good language. He tried to make some of it up, didn't stick. Um, but, you know, the standard, one, one standard response to that is, well, and as you've written about as well, Arnold, you know, governments fail too. Um, and markets, the clerk does bumble around, but the boss bumbles around too, and probably better let the clerk do the bumbling than the boss, because at least the clerk's on the on the floor of the store and has some idea what the customer's like, whereas the boss is far off. But I think there's a that's a there's a lot of truth to that. But I I think there's more to it. I, I think we are we are handicapped our whole notion of what markets are and what they do and what governments are and what governments do. Um, you know, certainly some things governments do make, as I mentioned in the book, make markets work better than they otherwise would. Certainly sometimes government intervention in markets makes the world better than, uh, than leaving it alone. 
but we have such a lack of appreciation of what the clerk is capable of um, and how that process unfolds. And I don't pretend to have um, the full story in the book or in my head. Uh, I, I think we've just, as a profession, scratched the surface on what these, what I call um, decentralized uh, processes, these market, what we call markets, how they actually work and what they actually do, how they actually use knowledge. I think we have much more to learn about what they do well and probably about what they don't do so well. Um, but I think we've neglected what they do well. It's sort of like, yeah, as you, as you said, well, the clerk's good at some of these things. Markets can take care of these things over here, shirts. Uh, apples, but, but you know, complicated stuff, healthcare and other yeah. things, education, it can't be trusted. We've got to design it, we've got to have an expert. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, one, one respo another response to that is although it is very gratifying and comforting to know that someone's in charge, I don't want to leave people with the impression that under markets no one's in charge in any sense. And you and I talked about this in our healthcare podcast. The fact that we allow competition and and decentralized uh, processes to work doesn't mean everything's just sort of random and you hope it turns out okay. Obviously, at the micro level, within the firm, within the organization, each organization is striving to excel and please the customer and do well in the ideal world we, that we revere. But there's no one in charge of the whole process, and there's no one in charge of the process across processes to... to getting a little bit complex. Let me try to say it differently. It's one thing to say, you know, there's no pencils are. There's no one to make sure. Isn't it wonderful that there's no one to, who worries about, has to worry that the Chinese, sudden increase in Chinese pencil demand doesn't deprive other people around the world. But it's not just that. It's the graphite, too, that goes into more than pencils. We don't run out of that either. So even if you had a czar who worked in pencils, you need a graphite czar. And then you think about all the stuff graphite goes into and the amount of knowledge that that person would have to have. It's just a remarkable thing. And when I, let me ask you a question. I'm curious, Arnold. When you went to graduate school, I think we were in graduate school in very similar times, and we were at the opposite ends of the um, methodological spectrum in, in those days. You were at MIT, and I was at Chicago. Did you hear of any of these ideas when you were in graduate school? No. And absolutely not. It was just you know it was just math, and also I think that to this day most MIT professors don't really understand this. They really live in a world where the economist's job is to point out ways in which markets are likely to go go awry, so as to help a designer slash government leader fix them. That that's really what what it's all about. It, it's really the right analogy because when you say problems and fix and, and advise, it, it, it's really this physics metaphor versus the biology metaphor. Both of us were really trained in the physics metaphor. And I don't mean, by the way, I don't mean to suggest that in Chicago we spent a lot of time on this. We didn't. The, the article that I've mentioned, The Use of Knowledge in Society by Hayek, was on my reading list in one class, and I don't know if we even ever spent any time talking about it. Uh, but it was on the reading list. I suspect it's not there anymore. But we didn't spend time talking about it. I never knew about these ideas. Uh, it had, it, I didn't learn about them until I started talking to people here at George Mason. 
and thinking about uh, what are called Austrian economists, people like Hayek and Mises, that go back really to Adam Smith, though. That the, these ideas, and before him, Adam Ferguson, as I mentioned before, these ideas were a, were a, a long have a long history in economics. And you mentioned the biology there. I've heard that Darwin was influenced by these economic by ideas. By Smith, yeah. And so that it's sort of a... It's sort of the ideas seeped out of economics into biology and then haven't seeped back into Correct. economics yet. And, and interestingly, there are, there's, a lot, there's been a, a rush of books and, and, and thinking and writing about complexity, which is another name for this phenomenon, of uh, spontaneous order or emergence, which is yet another name, in the biological literature and in the science literature. Who, and these folks are usually totally unaware that economists have thought about it before. Um, and don't realize that it's has important parallels. Uh, but you're right; it, it's this sort of experts tinkering with the system. Um, oh, the carburetor's running a little too too hot. We've got to you know adjust it down, reduce the air intake a little bit. That's the economist's role. You know, the fine tuning of the engine of the economy. And it's just um, not really. I don't think the right the right metaphor. It, it's as if. It's as if in biology you had people trying to accommodate all the people who would rather think of uh, you know, man as the product of God's design rather than man as the product of evolution. And they were trying to co- come up with some way to accommodate that. And I, think, I, I feel like the economics courses ultimately try to do that w- when they uh, talk about our need to design a better health care system or what have you. Right, and part of that comes from, interestingly, uh, just as among the general public, there is a lot of skepticism about laissez-faire, free market capitalism. There's an immense amount of skepticism about Darwin among educated and typical average people. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. One is, whatever you want to call it, emotional, spiritual, whatever. The other is it just doesn't, seem as easy to to grasp. Uh, as I said before, we have the intuition of a, of a designer in our own lives when we go to design the, the layout of our kitchen or the cleanliness of our kitchen or the cleanliness of our desk. If you want to get an orderly desk, you got to do it. It doesn't organize itself. If you want to have lots of pencils next year, it's better not to have someone in charge. It's better to let, let people make their own pursuit of their own self-interest. Now, having said that, I, I just want to mention one thing, I, and I mentioned this in the in the afterword of the book, uh, closing chapter. In my experience, a lot of people who are free market oriented are either deeply religious or deeply atheistic, um, uh, aggressively uh, believing or aggressively disbelieving, which is interesting in and of itself, and might be something to talk about another time. But I, I want to make it clear that you can be a believer in God and still believe in an undesigned economic system, and vice versa. Um, it's not a logical inconsistency, but I think some people want to be consistent in both. Uh, but most people are inconsistent in both, and that's actually logical. I just want to ma- mention that as a, as a possibility. Just because there can be things that are undesigned doesn't mean that all things are undesigned. There, there could be a designer. Human beings could be the product of God. I, but uh, I don't believe that a good pencil supply is, the, is designed by somebody. So. Okay. Um, in writing your books, do you 
Is it your dream to influence future leaders or the public? Well, my first book was a, a primer on trade issues called The Choice. And after I wrote it, um, people who liked it, I was living in Missouri at the time in St. Louis, and the most famous politician in Missouri in those days, this was the early 90s, was Dick Gephardt, who was, uh, as some of you remember, uh, I'm sure you remember Arnold, was a member of Congress from a blue-collar district of St. Louis that had a lot of Chrysler workers in it, auto workers. And Gephardt was, ran for president a couple times, and his main plank was protectionism, was that we were losing jobs to, in those days, Japan, losing the good jobs to Japan especially, the automaking jobs and other types of jobs was the claim. And my book took a different perspective, and people, after they read my book and liked it, would say, you know, you've just got to get a copy of this book in, to Dick Gephardt. <laughs> As if, on reading the book, Dick Gephardt would hold a press conference and say, you know, I just don't know what I've been thinking all these years. My, uh, the scales have fallen from my eyes. What was I thinking? <laughs> Protectionism's horrible. Trade's great. Well, I would tell people, when they'd make that suggestion, that you know, I think Dick Gephardt kind of understands how trade works, but he pursues his own self-interest, which is staying in Congress, and his constituents uh, kind of have a pretty strong interest in minimizing Japanese imports. So I think he's going to be a protectionist no matter what books he's read. In fact, uh, I'd be shocked if it were otherwise, and I don't think it is otherwise. Um, so I, I don't think it's a good idea to try to influence uh, politicians per se. Uh, my fantasy in life uh, is to is from the bottom up is to hope that through a little better understanding of economics uh, people will influence their leaders to be a little more um, a little different in their in their legislative behavior and I it's part of the reason I think I enjoy teaching um, I assume that's true for you too it's uh, Part of it's beautiful economics. It's it's fun. It's intellectually stimulating. It's exhilarating, uh, and it's fun to share that with people. That's part of the motive. But I like to think that it helps us understand the world a little bit better. All right. Um, Do you agree with that? I I'm not the, sure. You write a lot for the general public. What's your? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure whether I can justify my writing as anything other than sort of internal, you know, need to get, you know, sort of. To vomit out my thoughts or something, but uh, a catharsis, I think, is the, is the <laughs> polite word. <laughs> but um, uh, no, I think I think there's a hope that some people will like the knowledge for whatever you know for whatever purpose. I, I guess I I can't say that I even fantasize that lots and lots of people will, that so many people will appreciate uh, economics that uh, that will all of a sudden have a, a constituency that supports great economic policy. I'm not sure what I... I I've become very uh, very pessimistic, um, certainly about the political process. Um, you know, I feel like it's, it's sort of a, you know, a lose-lose for, uh, for those of us kind of on the libertarian uh, end of things. And I just think that this nar the, the narrative that somebody ought to be in charge and that things work better when a good guy's in charge is just so such the overwhelming narrative uh, that we're I think 
almost destined to be a minority. Well, that's probably true. I take a lot of solace in the fact that the system works pretty well anyway. Um, I, I like to think, I don't know if it's true, or we're, we're digressing here, but let's digress for a minute, uh, especially since we're about to start a, a very, very intense uh, electoral uh, campaign coming up that's going to bombard us, and we're going to be stuck writing and thinking about it some anyway. Um, I like to think, maybe I'm wrong, I like to think it's not as important as it as as it appears. I agree it's sort of a lose-lose. There's there's not a lot to, on the surface that appears cheerful, but I think I take a lot of comfort in the fact that um, most of us just go about our lives anyway, and there are a lot of bad regulations and a lot of bad law legislation and and bad decisions that come out of Washington and our various capitals, and some decent ones too, by the way. I don't want to be overly negative about it, but plenty of negative ones, plenty of bad ones. And, you know, we find ways around them. Um, they get minimized. They don't get to zero. They do reward some really nasty people who've lobbied for them sometimes, or they're just mistakes. Um, but state works pretty well. A uh, huge portion of our lives are relatively unaffected by bad, bad decisions coming out of government. Seems to me, but maybe I'm fooling myself. Um, well, that's a good perspective. I, and I do think there's a huge element of theater in the in election. It's really uh, almost designed to get, well, now that's an interesting question, whether to, whether to think about an election as a designed process or some kind of emergent process. A little of both, probably. Um, but it's almost as if it were designed to uh, you know, convince people that they're participating and that these things really matter and it's going to make a huge difference uh, who is elected <laughs> and you know per- perhaps their actual degrees of freedom after they're elected are small and we probably should be pretty thankful for that yeah <laughs> here here sorry I interrupted you no that's okay um, would you ever write a book in which uh, People in government were villains, a la Ayn Rand, or that the or people who are trying, who are purportedly trying to do good, are villains. Or do you believe that they're actually just misguided? Uh, well, I don't think it's either. Actually, um, I I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but um, I've had it at least once, probably more than once. Talking about school choice, I'll make some angry remark about the teachers union or teachers opposition to educational reform sometimes in my speech or sometimes in response to a question someone will raise their hand and say well my mom's a teacher and she's 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 a good person <laughs> and you're thinking well of course she is you know I, uh, I was educated in the public school system in Lexington Massachusetts mostly and I had wonderful teachers some duds uh, but I had lots of great teachers who cared deeply about education and tried hard. And um, and I've met lots of people in, in government. I've met a lot of congressional staffers through the uh, Capitol Hill campus of the Mercatus Center that I teach in on Capitol Hill. It's a seminar program we run. And I've met a few actual politicians, um, office holders. They're all decent human beings. They're all just like all teachers are decent, most of them, not all of them, most of them are fine. It's what you said before, the constraints have been set up 
and they of course have emerged also they are not designed the constraints the constraints are complicated no no one designed the legislative system uh, they put some things in place but no one just designed it the way it actually turned out and no one designs this labyrinthine educational system we have but given the way it has emerged uh, the incentives are unfortunately not always the ones that are conducive to first-rate education or first-rate legislation um, and um, so I don't I, I think the interesting book to write would be the book of the decent human being who's just following self-interest as most of us do or even idealistically trying to make the world better and struggling with the reality that often what is rewarded is not always uh, what is just. I have to mention, I, I just started watching recently the on uh, DVD the HBO series The Wire. Have you ever seen that? Just the first episode. Okay, so I, we, my wife and I just watched the first season, and it, it's a brutal show. It's, um, it's not for children. It may not even be for adults. It's, um, it's deeply disturbing. The language is, um, is crude. It's violent. It's about drug users and drug dealers. And um, that may be a feature, not a bug for some listeners, but I just thought I'd warn people out there who, who might want to know in advance. But the, to me, as, as The Economist, what's utterly fascinating about that show and what the show captures, I think deliberately on the part of the script, is the incentives that police face. The book's about the drug war uh, in Baltimore. The show. The show, yeah. The show's about the drug war in Baltimore. And uh, we see every bit of it. We see drug dealers and their hierarchy we see uh, the police and their hierarchy. We see all the different, un mostly unpleasant side of that experience. And what is extraordinary about the show is that many of the people are just, quote, trying to do their job, whether their job is to supply drugs or catch drug dealers. And what, what of course, happens on the police side, which is the main, much of the focus of the show, is the bureaucracy, the constraints that the police face, often are at odds with getting rid of drugs. And um, the idea, this idealistic idea that we're going to get drugs off the street, is it's very difficult to sustain that, that belief on the part of the police after a while. And the show captures that. Decent people struggling to do their job, given the incentives for promotion and the politics. It's a brilliant show about public choice. It's not, I think, why most people watch yeah. it, is my guess. But it, if, you're, if you're interested in public choice, it does what we've just been talking about. Show how sometimes decent people end up doing some indecent things because it's so tempting. Well, that brings up the question of sort of politics and government as an emergent order. Mm -hmm. And that's something, I guess, gets talked about much less. Uh, but it, you know, we... It's always, uh, Tyler Cowen uses the, the, throws the term free variable. We act as if government policy is a free variable. They're unconstrained. Whatever government wants to do, it can do. We just set the knob to 7.3 or 4.5. Yeah, you know, we, we, yeah, we'll, we can change health care compensation from, uh, by procedures to quality and 
you know, we'll know what quality is and, and we can just completely reform the healthcare system. We have, we have all these choices. Um, he criticizes some of the public choice literature as thinking that the Constitution is a free variable rather than realizing that ultimately the way a Constitution Im- uh, is implemented is an emergent phenomenon also. Correct. So um, any chance we'll see a book on the... Uh, Emergent order of politics, or uh, no? I don't. I don't think so. But it sure is an interesting and I think important way to think about it. Until about two or three years ago, really, until I got immersed in this book, uh, I would often say, in as a teacher or as a writer, uh, we've decided in the United States to have a mixed system of government regulation and economic freedom, or we've decided in the United States to mostly have low tariffs, but in a few areas, they're still there. And uh, you pointed out in a wonderful essay uh, a few months back uh, that one of the essences of the George Mason approach to economics is to lose the we, as if there is a, uh, an us that is making those decisions. And that is just, that's a very nice way of thinking about one aspect of this emergent order. Political decisions are not decisions like where we're going to dinner on, on Tuesday night, Political decisions are a soup, they're a stew, they're a, 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 a cacophony of, of political voices that eventually forms a very strange chorus that is not what any composer wrote. And so I think thinking about politics in that way is extremely useful. Um, politicians are individuals, political decisions are the result of individual decisions, but it, it's its own unique uh, brand of constraints and and things that lead to outcomes. And keeping that in mind is very difficult and very, I think, very powerful for thinking about how the world works. Yeah, I just read a book. I think it's the author is Christopher Howard. I'll have to remember it. It's called the I think it's the Welfare State Nobody Knows or something uh-huh. like that. And he's is on the left. He would like to see a well-designed welfare state, but you can see, as he describes it, how it emerges from different political constraints. The welfare state. Yeah, the, how the American you know, welfare state... You know, you see, the European, from his point of view, the European welfare state is more coherent. It, it, it was designed by a parliamentary majority and makes more sense. In America, he sees it more as a, more of a hodgepodge uh, with a lot of... You, know, you would never sit and ahead of time design the mortgage interest deduction the right. way it did. It was, he, you know, his point is, when it was enacted, it affected very few people. It was not this you know, important middle-class entitlement that we, think of it, uh, that we think of it now. So most of these uh, programs that have become you know, the American redistribution or welfare state were not uh, originally intended in the form that they now are. Social Security is another example. It was yeah. a much smaller program. Um, so it's just... Uh, it's, that's just an, a rare illustration of somebody looking at these policies as emergent phenomena rather than as desi- as if they were desi- all designed. From well, it's an interesting question, thinking about whether the world would be a better or worse place, whether legislation and political outcomes would be better or worse if there were more constraints on it. So, you know, for example, earmarking seems like a good thing. Add a little thing here or there. You you don't want to have to design it, you know, or or voting on one little piece or that little piece. You don't want to have the whole thing up, thumbs up or thumbs down. That's so inflexible. 
So we have this sort of, again, um, I think a uh, miss, an over-appreciation of the virtues of uh, tinkering and flexibility and discretion. So it, it's an interesting thought as to whether the legislative outcomes would be better if Congress, let's say Congress could pass one, do one thing a year, you know, <laughs> and everybody would vote on it, pay a lot of attention to it if that were true. Um, anyway, that's just, just a thought. It's, it's just an interesting example of how the, the hodgepodge, the, the patchwork, say, of, of the welfare system is partly a result of the fact of the way the system allows that kind of hodgepodge to emerge. Of course, on the other hand, one of the virtues of a hodgepodge is that each little piece rubs up against the other pieces, and that in turn creates constraints. So I'm not sure it's as straightforward as, as thinking it all could be better if it were all done at once. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we probably should be wrapping up. Is yeah, my we've guess. got, I'd say, five or, ten, five or so minutes to go. Okay. Then. Um, Put on my host hat for a minute. Okay. <laughs> for 30 sure. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have another uh, novel in the works and you're thinking of it? No, I've, I'm thinking about a couple other books. There's, there's, um, that might not be a novel. Um, I'm interested in why people get afraid of certain things economically. Um, so that's one, one thing I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm also thinking about writing about income uh, and our standard of living. Part of this book we didn't get to talk about is about how our standard of living has evolved over the last century and how that is the result of emergent processes and innovation and technology and growth. And I, obviously, we don't appreciate that. We don't have much of an understanding of it. I, I ask in the book how strange it. I mention how strange it is that we live in the richest society in human history, and we don't teach our children how we got to be that uh, and how that system works. Um, it's a very strange thing to me. And another shortcoming of the basic economics course and textbook. Uh, but uh, yeah, I actually. With Nick Schultz, I have written a book that tries to get at some of that stuff. Uh -huh. um, and so maybe maybe you'll have a look at that when Absolutely. that comes out. Absolutely. When's that, when's that coming out? Uh, I'm not sure. It's, it's with the publisher. They uh -huh. are working on it. I'm hoping uh, by early next year. Oh, that'd be cool. Uh, we're ten tentatively calling it Economics 2.0 to try to uh -huh. distinguish it from uh, the Economics 1.0 that you get. Uh, I like that. It's a good title. Management. I think that's a uh, so that's an area I'm interested in. Uh, maybe doing a little bit more on. So uh, maybe I'll uh, I'll learn from yours and uh, try to write something on it. It's um, it's a it's a source of great I think confusion the way data and numbers are put together on the topic. I think there's an immense amount of misunderstanding of both our well-being and how it has changed over time and how it's different across people. And where it comes from, and yeah. how much of it is intangible versus tangible, yeah. and all that stuff. No, there, that's, there's great stuff there. Well, what about uh, a movie or a TV version of The Price of Everything? Any chance we'll ever see that? Uh, you'll have to talk to my agent, and I don't have one. Um, I, do, I do want video, visual, economic education. I don't know if it'll come out of my work, but I think it's extremely important that we, as economists, find ways to communicate to everyday people in ways that are not just the standard ways. Uh, I want more novels. I want more movies. I want more folk songs. 
<laughs> I want more, a little more of everything uh, that would be a little more compelling than a textbook. Uh, just to tell you a story, I was on vacation last week, and the place we were staying had a lending library. And it's a really nice library. It was wonderful. I thought it was going to be a shelf. It was a, it was a room, and it had f wonderful fiction and biography, and there was no one there. Uh, it, it, it wasn't spontaneous order. There, there was a desk you piled your donations on, and someone was very thoughtfully and very doing it very well, cataloging the books and putting them on the shelf in an orderly fashion so you could find something that you might actually be looking for. It was very, very nicely done. And on the wall was a note. And the note said, um, we really appreciate your donations, but we don't want any of this. And this included things like outdated books. So I assume that would be like a, a guide to um, New York City in 1980. You know, no, it, information's stale. They said, no periodicals. We don't have a good way to display magazines, etc. But the first thing that was listed that they don't want, they said, no textbooks. And underneath it, it said, they are never checked out, period, <laughs> ever, period. So to me, that kind of, you know, that says it all. I, uh, people will come to me sometime and they say, you know, I want to learn e real economics. You know, I like the little taste I got in this book or that book. I want to get to the real thing, as if the other books weren't the real thing. Sometimes they are, of course. But, you know, always, I think what they had in mind was they wanted something with it, with an equation or a graph or a chart or thick or fat, yeah, or multicolored, <laughs> and and they, they they wanted to get really into it. So in my early days as an economist, as a teacher, I'd, I'd give them a textbook like the Economic Way of Thinking, which is a wonderful textbook by Paul Hayne and now co-written with uh, uh, Pete Betke, I think David Pacheco, and it's it's a it's a wonderful book. But most people do not sit curl up with a textbook. You know, they just mm -hmm. We have a romance that we can still sometimes, those of us who used to read them with some profit and, and, and diligence. But the idea that somehow you're going to work your way through Samuelson's Principles or even Gortney and Stroop, which I think is a much better book, or John Taylor's, is just, it's a long shot. Um, so textbooks, I think, are not really the way to go. Novels are better. Essays are good. But even better... Movies, cartoons, yeah, I YouTube. Thought, I think if you could get if you could get uh, the price of everything into sort of an hour, hour and fifteen minute video, get it, you know, so distribute it to teachers because teachers you know, often are need something to show on a you know, yeah. when they're desperate. Well, it's um, a thought. It is a thought, <laughs> and I a thought I appreciate. Well, we're out of time. Uh, Arnold, thanks for being our guest host today, and um, see everybody next week. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.